well, good morning. If you're new, my name is Steve, one of the pastors here. Uh, you picked a great warm and dry Sunday to join us. We're going to be here in Luke chapter 3. So if you got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it. Turn with me to Luke chapter 3. And we'll take a look here at, uh, at what God has to say to us. Uh, last week, we ended talking about really the beginning of John the Baptist's ministry. And we really, all we did last week was look at the forerunner. We looked at who this individual was in coming to bring a message of repentance. As he came in the wilderness and around the Jordan area, we saw that his message was one of uh, proclaiming a baptism for the forgiveness, for a, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And we saw how that uh, John was one of the fulfillments of Isaiah chapter 40, which, which we read briefly and we looked at the, uh, the comfort that God brings to his people in Isaiah 40 and onward as God looks to comfort and encourage his people through the forgiveness of sins, through the taking away of their sins and the redemption of his Old Testament people Israel. So it was this beautiful passage uh, that really set us up for what we're going to see here today. Well, we're still going to be talking about repentance because, uh, you know, I don't know about you, but I, I need to repent consistently. If, it, if you've done any reading about uh, Luther, one of the key individuals of the Reformation period, he, he nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, and, he, and one of the first things he said is that our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, uh, said that all of life ought to be repentance. And it, it framed, as it were, it framed at the beginning of his life and his ministry in that time, and at the end of his life, he, he closes really the, his entire life by saying, all of us are beggars, this is true. Uh, so the characteristic, uh, even in Luther, as he did ministry in his own day and time, was to understand that our Christian lives are meant to run on the fuel of repentance. It's meant to be a consistent awareness uh, in our Christian lives. Have you found that to be the case, that you are still a sinner even after Jesus has saved you? Isn't that annoying? Man, I thought the sin would go away. But now it's almost like I have this radar uh, to all of the sin and where it pops up in my life. And for many of us, uh, repentance is like good gardening. Like you don't garden like I do once a year, right? You got to be out there with the things you grow uh, and you got to be tending it, right? And when's the best time to weed? The best time to weed is when? When the weeds are little, well, that's what repentance is for us. It's this ongoing daily practice where we are consistently recognizing our need for repentance, our need to seek forgiveness for sins, to turn from those sins, to find the peace of forgiveness, and to walk in purity with Christ. We're doing that all the time. So what we're going to see here at the, really the remainder of Luke chapter 3 is John's ministry compressed for us so that we're going to take Luke 3 verse 7 all the way to about verse 20 and we're going to take a look at what really is repentance. Because we all respond, I mean, remember last week we talked about all that, all the repentance that we had to do about all the areas of life. I gave all those examples. Wasn't that annoying? I mean, th coming up with those was super annoying to go like, oh, I got to repent there and I've got to repent over there. And one of the things I recognize that when you write sermons like that and you tell people to actually repent is that I have a tendency to resist repenting. Don't you have that? That I have, I have methods, very philosophical and very wise and very subtle methods by which I resist doing the thing that I know I need to do when my sin is exposed. 
So when you're confronted with the command from an individual like John the Baptist who comes preaching in the Jordan River, how do you respond to the command to repent? We may minimize it. We may say that, well, repentance is for the, the really bad folks. I don't have necessarily anything big that I need to repent for. I know repentance is, is important for other people who really need to listen to this message and get their life right and repent of the major sins that they're doing, but it's not that applicable to me right now. Your response to repentance might just be to neglect it. I know I need to do it. I don't do it as, it's like prayer, right? I know I need to pray more. I'll pray later. Don't have time for it now. I'll repent later. I know when something really big comes up, I'll repent and say sorry for that. But generally, my life isn't characterized by a constant awareness of my sin and a seeking God's face through repentance. Maybe you fundamentally misunderstand repentance. What do you think? Do you think it's important to know how to repent and what repentance is? If John preaches this and his hair's on fire and there's bugs in his teeth and he's eating honey and he's yelling at people, we probably need to understand what we're doing, right? So maybe I think for a lot of us, maybe, you know, myself included, as I reflect on a passage like this, I go, there are probably some ways in which I misunderstand repentance, that is repentance merely sorrow for sin when it gets exposed and then after about 72 hours, there's not really anything I can do about my sin three days ago, so I guess I'm over it and I move on. Is that it? Is, is repentance merely being sad? And what I want to show you here in this passage is um, what John does for us. Uh, in 1942, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. Our pastoral residents are going through it. And if you know C.S. Lewis and the way he writes, and you may know Screwtape Letters or not, it's a, it's a uh, satirical letter written by an elder demon to an uh, incompetent demon who's not doing a very good job of being a demon. And the entire series of letters is written from the demonic side of things to say, here's what you need to do to discourage and deceive and dissuade this patient or this Christian now from being completely effective in the things that God is calling them to do. And all through the letters, it, it, the demons are discussing, here's a tactic, here's a tactic, here's a tactic. So if John bursts onto the scene, and we all recognize that we have a tendency to either minimize or adjust or neglect or downright deny our need for repentance, how is it that we might be aware of the threats to our spiritual life. So what I want to do is give you about four things to tell you. If you don't want repentance, if you don't really want a refreshing, joyful, intimate walk with God where you experience him, know his love, know his goodness, and all of those things, I want to give you four things that you can do to minimize your need for repentance, to make you feel really good about yourself, and totally ignore the spiritual reform that needs to happen in your hearts. That sounds like a weird thing for a pastor to say, doesn't it? But you're going to see all of them in a passage like this. And we need to understand a passage like this to understand both how our hearts work. We need to understand that the temptations we have. And what John is going to do is not all, he did, last week he talked about repentance, right? He said, I'm the fulfillment. All the obstacles are going to go away. Repentance tears down everything, makes everything crooked, straight, everything high, low, everything low, high, so that we can all see the glory of God. And he's going to have all these people coming to him, and he's going to now just start throwing haymakers at people who are coming out to listen to his ministry. And he's going to show you how you and I have a tendency to avoid repentance. And conversely, how we know we're doing it right. Okay? You with me so far? 
Let's pray just for a second and ask God for his grace. Father, for these few minutes, for the people in the room who may be discouraged or despairing, who are uncertain of your love for them, Father, I would pray that just for the few minutes that we are gathered here today as we look into your word, that you would blow away the mirage that we have a tendency to believe about our spiritual lives. Father, that you would free us from the sins of self-confidence, the sins of believing the sermons we preach to ourselves, the sins of evaluating ourselves by what other people say. And Father, through your word and through the power of your spirit that you would speak into our lives and hearts, that you would change us, that we would experience the joy of true repentance and experiencing you for who you are. That for men and women in this room, there might be a moment here where they would see Jesus as profoundly beautiful and precious to their soul. That you would capture our attention and our affection as we look at a passage like this. So Father, bless us as we aspire to know you more, to make you known, and to repent the way you call us to. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, Luke 3, verse 7. We all there? Good. I don't care. We're going to go. Luke 3, verse 7. He said, therefore, now pause right there just for a minute. John's preaching ministry is a crazy preaching ministry. John's in the wilderness, he's preaching like crazy, people are coming out to him, and this pivot, after we finish quoting Isaiah chapter 40, is John's response to everybody who's listening to his preaching. I want you to imagine this just for a minute. Here's John preaching with his hair on fire, and everybody is coming out to be baptized by this guy because he is unique. He is not a part of the political or the religious establishment of the day. He is preaching hard, face-to-face, get-in-your-grill kind of preaching. And he's preaching and he's baptizing. And you can imagine probably five or six, 10, 20 people are coming out and starting to listen. And word is starting to spread. And here's John doing his preaching and his baptizing work. And I want you to just put this in your mind. As he's doing that work and people are responding to his preaching, the lines start to get longer. The crowd starts to get bigger. People start to really put into action the things that he is saying, that his preaching is having an impact. People are saying, you're right, John. I hear you, John. I I believe what you're preaching. It's every preacher's dream to have everybody stand and go, amen, and yes, and we receive it, and that word's for me, and I'm going to do it, and just tell me what to do. I'm going to be about going into the, your preaching. I'm going to repent. I'm going to do it. I'm going to get baptized. I'm bringing my wife. We're all going to get baptized. The whole family's getting baptized. We don't care. We're all doing it. We're all in. And the more the crowds begin to grow, John gets more and more anxious. He gets more and more bothered. So much so that he explodes in verse 7 saying something that I would argue for young preachers you ought never to say to people you preach to. Unless they're doing something that causes you great consternation. And as people are listening to this preaching message and the lines are getting longer and the crowds are getting bigger and more and more people are coming to get baptized, the other synoptic gospels say that what John is about to say here is primarily directed at the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders of the day. But Luke doesn't give us that. 
And I think the reason Luke doesn't give us that is that we all have a tendency to do what John is about to rebuke us for. Look at what John says. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Well, I mean, that's weird. I mean, you're preaching, and we're listening, and you're saying we ought to get baptized, and we're doing it, and now you're calling us a pile of snakes. I don't connect that for me, John. Does that make sense? You, you should be surprised at that, that uh, what do you call it, that greeting? I don't know what you call it, a greeting, a rebuke? It's as if ta- John turns on the very people who are obeying his preaching and he yells at them. He rebukes them. And the only way that we're able to understand something like this is, is to understand that John can give direction and people can respond and at the same time John can rebuke them for being snakes and fleeing the wrath of God. It means that the only way we can understand is that there's a wrong way to obey a preacher. Right? There's, there's a wrong way to respond to John's baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Let me take it further. There's a wrong way to get baptized. So that as John experiences this line of people and this crowd of people growing, the consternation and weight upon his chest gets more and more and more until he responds and reacts to the people saying, who warns you? Who are you? Why are you coming and doing this? Why are you doing the exact thing that I say so that when I read this, I have to ask the question, it must be that people are responding by doing the right thing in the wrong way. Right? You with me? Now, would you agree that our spiritual lives are far too nuanced For me to give you three things to do this week, you go and do them and you come back on Sunday and go, my spiritual life is in a healthy place. Would you agree with that? Would you agree that throughout the course of this week, you're going to be tempted to do the right thing for the wrong reason? You're going to be tempted to walk in obedience so that people might see your self-righteousness? That you might be so scared of God that you keep your whole spiritual life in line and you do A, B, and C, and D, E, and F, and H, I, and J, and K, L, M, and no P. And you go, Jesus, I'm keeping all the rules. Look at me, look at me, I'm keeping all the rules. Aren't I good, aren't I good, aren't I in the right place with you? I'm doing everything. I went to community group, I got baptized, I got baptized twice. Aren't I doing good? And we all have this tendency. You know what I want? Here's the thing. I want in my life, if I could fix the sin issues in my heart, I'd like to do it online with like a continuing education class that I took, you know, for three, I'll give them three hours a month. I'll do a three-hour class on a weekend and fix the issues in my heart, right? That's what I'd really like. Don't you all like that? You want your spiritual life issues to get handled in about as long as it takes you to heat up a cup of coffee, We all want that. We all have this tendency to go, John, just tell me what, enough with the wrath and the yelling. Can you just speed it up, John? We got all these people. I'm in line. 
I got to get back to the thing. Can I just, you just dunk me real quick and my wife and we'll be on our way and get it done. How does John respond to that? John says, you're a brood of vipers fleeing the wrath that is to come. Now, let me just make one question, point on wrath. John's going to mention fire three times. He's going to mention burning once. He's going to mention an axe laid at the fruit of the tree in just a minute. Would you agree that John's preaching has the highest stakes involved? If John is preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and then he starts talking about wrath, and there is no other higher stakes than what John is preaching about right here. For John to call people snakes saying, just give me something to do that'll protect me from the wrath of God, is to misunderstand what John is doing. Amen? It's to misunderstand the whole course of why John is on the scene. So here's your first, if you want to keep repentance as far away from you as possible, here's what you do. You give very little attention to your inner spiritual life, and you focus the majority of your Christian spiritual religious experience on the externals. You just do the right things. You just do what people tell you to do. You stay in line. You be a good citizen. You obey the rules. Give no thought to what's happening in here about the motivations of your heart. Give no thought to the lusts and the idols and the fears and the anxieties and the shame and all of the things that exist at our heart level. Just don't worry about those things. Just do the externals. You with me so far? Look at verse 8. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. John's saying, in response to the point I just gave you, have a holistic life. Right? Isn't that what it means to live in keeping? Bear fruits, which means display the health that ought to be there that comes from a heart of repentance so that my internal life and my external life should connect. They should be in sync. You with me? It should be a holistic approach to your spiritual life. You can't reduce Christianity down to a set of rules that you ought to obey. Your Christian life will get hard and dry and die. John says, allow the fruit to get worked out in your life that comes from a heart of repentance, a posture toward God of repenting for the sin that you know you have. Keep, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And watch this. A lot of times when, when preachers get up to preach, they have to aim at a target. They got to aim at something. Like, we all feel bad for not doing enough, so a lot of sermons sometimes can aim at our activities. You know what you're doing? Not enough. You're, and also you're doing the wrong stuff. Stop doing the bad stuff. Let's go do the good stuff. Rah, rah, rah. Let's all get together. Let's go do good stuff. Amen. Yay. Great preaching. Some preaching is aimed at our emotions. You're sad, let me help you not be sad. You leave here together, you'll be happy. Amen? Isn't that great? Yay, we had our emotional life tweaked. We had like the emotional oil change. I go to it at church, I come, I get, I'm sad when I come, I'm less sad when I leave, I sing real loud, everybody's happy, we get the song sung we need to, we're all happy when we leave. We're aiming at emotional life. John doesn't aim there. John aims at a very interesting spot where a lot of sermons aim. John aims at the mind. Because when we all get together, there are certain truths that you have and I have, Steve Heron has, a tendency to not believe. Amen? There are truths that I forget, I easily forget. 
And John steps into the inner mental conversation. Would you agree that there's nobody who talks to you more than you? Right? You love talking to you. You love giving yourself great insight, great wisdom and counsel. You have lots of things to talk about with you. You love talking to you about the things you love. You love talking to you about the things you think. You love talking to you about other people and what they ought to be thinking and doing and loving. That conversation is happening all the time and what John does in the beginning is saying stop focusing on the externals, focus on what's happening here. Live a life of holistic integrity. And now John says don't begin to talk like this on the inside. Now does John understand how we have a tendency to talk to ourselves on the inside? He sure does. Look at what he says. Don't begin to say to yourselves, which means your response to me talking to you about your spiritual life being merely external is going to be backed up by a conversation you have in your brain all the time. Are you with me? You see what he's doing? John, let's go. I just need to get baptized. And John says, no, 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 no. Whoa, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And don't begin to say to yourself, which means don't have this kind of conversation. I know what you're thinking. I know where you're going in the reasoning of your minds. Don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Now, as John is on the scene speaking to the Jewish people who are coming out to be baptized by him, he is addressing a particular cultural idol at the time that is bound and in the Jewish mindset, in the Jewish culture. They would say, we are, John, we're God's people. You don't understand. We've been descendant from Abraham, the very one who got the promises of God. We're here because of God's grace. We're the people of God. We are ethnically descended from the person that you chose out of all the nations to give to your promises of grace. And the thing that will save me from the wrath of God is that I'm a Jew. I'm on the team already. Got my tattoo, got the jersey, already got the ball. We play all together. We're all Jews. We're protected. Here's what Paul says in Romans 9 about the Israelites. He says they're Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Even Paul recognizes that these are God's Old Testament chosen covenant people. But then two verses later he says, but not all are Israel who are descended from Israel. What does that mean? It means that there's a different way of relating to God than by ethnicity. You with me? Now, let me apply it to us. Your inner conversations typically will be characterized. My inner conversations will be characterized by ways in which we uh, set up our own rungs of righteousness. Well, I'm working hard in school right now. I'm pursuing my degree, I'm clearly more educated, I'm clearly more advanced, I'm clearly more wise and put together than a lot of these other people. These other people probably need to repent because they're not that bright, they're stupid. They have real problems with God because they don't know the things that I know. They can't quote verses from Deuteronomy like I know. They don't know the book of Romans like I know. And they need God, they need to repent, they need to get their life together and they probably need to be a lot more like me. Or I've been advanced in my career. I've accomplished a lot of things. 
There are lots of people who report to me. I'm in a position of great authority and great influence, and I have great opportunity to live for God. And the problem with a lot of people is they don't work as hard as me. They're not as accomplished as me. They're not as disciplined as me. They're not as visible as me. And they probably need Jesus. I mean, I don't need Jesus that much. I need Jesus for the big problems in my life. See, in every culture and every time, no matter what group of friends you're in, whatever line of work you are in, you will be tempted to have a mental conversation that says, I'm fine. And I won't excuse myself from that. I'll say that this exists in my line of work too. Is that look at the fruit of what God's doing in our ministry. Look at the fruit of what God's doing in our church. Look at how good I'm doing at serving the Lord in the occupation that he's called me to. I really don't need to repent that much. I just need some extra power to accomplish the thing that's, that God wants me to accomplish. Don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, and this is fantastic, John, man, John just comes with a thunder. Do you know what this means? At the end, look at the end of the verse. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up, sorry, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. You know what that means? That means you don't have a claim on God. There's no ace up your sleeve that you can give to God and go, oh gosh, you had the ace? I just had, I just had a king. You did that? You were influential at work? You had a position of influence on the earth? You did all the things that John told you to do? And John just drops the mic and he goes, God can raise up rocks to be his kids. You have zero claim on God because of your righteousness that you think you provide for him. So here's threat number one. You with me? Threat number one, keep it on the outside. Don't worry about what's happening on the inside. Number two, false security. Do a lot of stuff on the outside that you think earns you points from heaven. Put your life not in the hands of Jesus Christ who loved you, died for you, spent three days in the tomb, rose again, and went to heaven to secure your eternal future and redemption. Put your life in something else's hands. Put your life in your career, in your relationships, in your money, in your accomplishments. Don't worry that much about repentance. Verse 9, even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. What does that mean, even now? This is one of the reasons John's preaching is so compelling is because he says, hey, repent now. Repent now. When's the best time to repent? About two minutes ago. When's the best time to respond to John's preaching message? About two minutes ago. Even now, imagine an ax laid at the root of the tree. You ever have to cut up a tree that's dead? We had a tree blow over during one of the hurricanes, and I had to rip it out by hand. And I had to go after the roots that were holding it into the ground. And you had to take an ax, and you had to go. It didn't matter what the fruit was. It was a bush I hate. They're wax myrtles. Aren't they annoying? They grow everywhere in Charleston, and I want to set them on fire. This has nothing to do with the sermon. I used to, in the last house I was in, they took over my backyard. They would grow every, you'd pull them out and they'd come up in other spots of the yard. I was like, it is like, I don't know what, aliens. I don't know what it is. Super annoying. I ripped it out. I had so much joy ripping that bush out. You know what? It showed up on my neighbor's property line. It grew again. What was I talking about? <laughs> Even now, the ax is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is what? Cut down and thrown into the fire. 
How many times does he mention fire in two verses? Twice. Are there consequences for refusing to obey and refusing to repent? Yes. When will those consequences come? I don't know, but John seems to say it's any minute. Even now, the axe is laid at the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is the thing about fruit is that John's perspective on our sins are not that they're personality quirks. They're not mistakes. They're not misunderstandings. They're expressions of a heart that is in rebellion against God and deserving of his wrath and judgment. That's what makes John's preaching so urgent and earnest. Something so serious that he is confronting these people with. So, what do you think the people are going to say now? John's preaching a baptism of repentance. He's yelling at them like crazy. He's calling them broods of vipers, fleeing the wrath of God to come. He's telling them to live a life of holistic obedience from the inside out. What do you think the people are going to ask? What's the question you're asking? Don't you feel a little frozen? Well, he just said get baptized, but I probably shouldn't because now he's calling those people snakes who got baptized. I'm not sure if I'm repenting the correct way. What in the world should I do? Don't you feel the whole line and the group of people kind of grind to a going into the water? Not, not in the water. Do we do? Don't do it. We're snakes? Look at verse 10. The crowds asked him, what then shall we do? I love that. Because they don't know. John's snapping at everybody. He's preaching like crazy. He's telling people, get baptized, but then don't get baptized because you're doing it wrong. Well, what, do you, what should, then shall we do? So watch this. Watch what John does. This is brilliant preaching. It is brilliant. You see why John is called the greatest man born of woman. Look at what he does. He's going to address three groups of people real quick, and he's going to show you what, what really ought repentance look like. Don't we need to know that? If I'm repenting, what ought to happen? What really should be going on in my life if I'm authentically repentant? Look at verse 10. What shall when we do? Verse 11, he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Which means, if repentance is working in your heart, there are two ways immediately that John says, I'm going to know that person gets it. Yes, they're repenting. Yes, they're sorrowing over their sin. But watch how they act once they get out of the water and they dry off. And the response that John show you, shows you is a response of empathy and generosity. Empathy towards those who are in need and need something that I have the ability to provide so that I now might move toward those people who are in need with the ambition of meeting their needs because of my generosity. Isn't that fascinating? Say yes. That's incredible. That's incredible. How do I know that when these people who have done this activity have been baptized, and they begin now to walk out in their life. What I see them doing is being aware that their repentance has a relational component to it. Now listen, if, if we understood 
the grace of God. Imagine if we were so captivated as a church by the fact that all of my sins, all of them, past, present, future, are completely handled in Jesus Christ. What in the world would prevent me from moving toward people who are in need with what I have in my hands? So do you want to know whether or not the repentance you have is real is look at your relationships. How do you move towards those in need? Do you understand what you've been given in Jesus Christ? Do you move toward those in need with empathy and generosity? Verse 12, tax collectors also came to be baptized. I won't spend a lot of time on tax collectors. These guys were the worst of the worst in the culture. They were the most hated individuals in the culture. Chief tax collectors would bid on the contracts to uh, collect taxes, and then they would hire under tax collectors who were beneath them in the tax collector system. They would tax everything. They'd tax the roads. They'd tax the food. They'd tax travel. They would tax all sorts of stuff. Transactions, sales tax, they'd tax everything. You love the IRS? These guys are worse. Tax collectors came to be baptized and said, teacher, well, what do we do? You know, tax collectors are always pictured positively in the book of Luke. Isn't that incredible? It's amazing. We'll wait till we get to Luke 17 and Zacchaeus. Remember Zacchaeus? Wee little man was he? Up in the tree, sycamore, all that stuff. Watch as we go through this book how the tax collectors are treated. Watch how they're portrayed in the book. Here these people are interested to know, what is it shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Well, here's your argument for ethics at work. Is there, now there's, we have, you know, 400 plus, 500 people in this room. No doubt there are all sorts of different professions that are represented in a room like this. And you know in your line of work that there are certain things that you are able to get away with that aren't necessarily principled integrity things. Amen? There are certain things in your line of work that we can just do because, well, guys, that's just how it is. And tax collectors had the same thing. They were fully expected to fleece the people that they received the taxes from. In fact, it was such a lucrative profession that they were able to leverage the responsibility they had with military force to go and collect taxes from those who were under Rome's rule. So everybody expected them to break the rules. They were authorized X from Rome, but they would always go into these situations where they were collecting taxes and go, yeah, it's X, but it's really X plus 20% because daddy needs a rolls or BMW, whatever your car of choice is. I just, rolls came to me. I don't, that's all, don't worry about it. The point is, here's your argument for ethics at work. Does John toss the entire system? No, he says there are people who've been changed by repentance, who now live and work in the callings that God has called them to, but they do it with ethics and integrity because they understand something about repentance. Look at your third group. Do you think, I mean, guys, come on. Don't you think Christians ought to have a higher standard of ethics and integrity in the workplace? Don't you think that? Do we play down to the culture at work? John says no. You understand repentance. Of course 
You want to live out your integrity in the workplace. Look at the third group. Soldiers also ask him, and we, what do we do? And he said to them, you, got the, you get the theme? You, want, you know, one of the things about preaching, too, is you got to give people handles. Because everybody's confused about repentance, right? You got people go, okay, I don't know, now what? I got to go to work on Monday, my boss is like this, and the opportunities are like this, and everybody does this, and everybody's, you know, using their money like this, and everybody's fleecing the client like this. What do I do? Look at what he says. The soldiers asked him, what do we do? And he said to them, don't extort money from anyone by threats. Extort is literally the Greek word to shake. It's a shakedown. So that these people are in positions of authority and power, utilizing their authority and power to fleece the people that they're meant to protect and serve. Does that sound familiar? Is that ever a problem? Say yes. Come on, you're here today. The second thing he says, another prohibition by false accusation. It's planting the drugs on the victim. It's the way that I can use the opportunities I have to make sure that people live, in, live under the authority and power I have with fear and uncertainty so that I might line my pockets. And finally, be content with your wages. Have you ever tried to be content? I mean, tried, really tried? Isn't it impossible? You've never tried. You're all content? I mean, honestly, isn't contentment the furthest? I mean, it is like, it is virtually impossible for me to be content. Because I am always thinking about me. I am very, I need a whole constellation of biblical truth about Jesus Christ and him crucified to be able to handle the hunger in my heart. Do you feel that? So when Paul commands contentment, where is he aiming? He's not aiming out here at things that I can touch. What's he aiming at? He's aiming at the heart. He's saying repentance, if it's real, is going to hit your heart. Repentance is going to change you so that you can be content with the things that you have. This is what Paul says in 1 Timothy 6. If we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Hebrews 13, keep your life free from the love of money. One of the worst verses in the Bible. And be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's what you need to really be content. You need your relationship with God on the inside. The awareness of sin on the inside that needs to be repented of to free you from that tendency to continually amass stuff and to trust that God is your provider early in the morning all the way to at night and sustains you throughout the night. Amen? That's what we need. Listen, we live and breathe in a materialistic culture. If you think you don't struggle with contentment, you don't know what's going on out there. I struggle with contentment. We struggle with contentment. Amen? So here's threat number three. Number one, focus on the externals. Number two, listen to your preaching voice on the inside. Number three, leave your spiritual life at church on Sunday. Quit bringing it on Monday morning. You don't know how business works. We, aren't, we don't worry about integrity and ethics and right-wrong here. We got to make sure that we make money. So leave your ethics and integrity out of your Monday through Saturday. Sing on Sunday, hear good preaching, talk to good Christians. Monday, it's you. You do you. Now, everybody's asking at this point, because John is preaching like crazy, who is this guy? Look at verse 15. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all. 
saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And let me just say briefly here that John understands the message that he's preaching because of how he sees himself. And the connection that we have between John and Jesus is incredibly clear. Because John introduces us to the fact that he is doing a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But there's somebody else coming who's stronger, who's mightier, who's more glorious and more powerful than John is. In fact, he's so wonderful and so glorious that John thinks he's, that John is not even worthy to untie his sandals. That is something that was done uh, by people themselves. They wouldn't even let their slaves do it because it was considered too degrading to do. And John recognizes there is someone far more glorious and far more important than me. I'm merely preaching a baptism of repentance, but there's somebody else who's not doing a baptism of repentance. He's doing a different kind of baptism. And probably, as we understand what John says next, it's a singular baptism with two different outcomes. John's baptism is a baptism of preparation, right? Because it's looking forward to the object in which we put our faith so that our sins might be forgiven. Jesus' baptism is different. Jesus' baptism is a baptism of determination because the preaching is done. And the question is, what will you do with John's message? Because if you listen to John's message, Jesus will determine the outcome. Look at what he says. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water. What he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The fact of the matter is, is how you... How you respond to John's preaching determines whether or not you are repentant. How you respond to the preaching of Jesus Christ will determine your eternal destiny. Period. It's not preparation anymore. So as we are introduced to this preacher who recognizes, you know, this is why there is no room in the pulpit for a cult of personality. There's no room in the pulpit for being impressive toward people. There is no room in the pulpit toward me really getting you to do what I say. I have zero authority. Do you know that? None. We are dealing with your eternal destiny. We are dealing with your forever. Do you understand how John sees himself. Why is John so earnest? Because he knows at the end of the day, I don't make the eternity determination. There's somebody else that Revelation calls Jesus Christ with eyes of flame of fire, which means he's totally and absolutely discerning. He knows everything that is happening in your heart today, right now in this place. And you don't have to deal with me. You don't have to deal with John. But if the biblical record is true, if the preaching of John the Baptist points us toward considering the real preaching of Jesus Christ, then what I can tell you for certain and what John would tell you for certain is that you will deal with Jesus Christ. Verse 18, so with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. Now you should be laughing out loud right there. Why? 
Because gosh, John, you've mentioned axes, you've mentioned snakes, you've mentioned wrath, you've mentioned fire three times. You've mentioned people cutting down trees and throwing them into the fire. What is the deal? Why in the world would John and Luke give us this summary of John's preaching ministry? Unless John's preaching ministry is meant to see that you and I might somehow have a way to escape the wrath of God. Unless there's really an opportunity through repentance and faith to move not towards judgment and damnation, but toward being sealed with the Holy Spirit of God and be brought into his family. Because the reason John's preaching is so honest and so earnest is that he understands the stakes. That's why he starts where he does. Don't think that external evidence of righteousness will save you from wrath. Don't think that your self-confidence will save you from wrath. Don't think that a partial repentance that eliminates every single area of your life other than what you say on Sunday in some sort of me and Jesus approach to Christianity will save you from the wrath to come. You need to be holistically saved, holistically changed, holistically redeemed, holistically forgiven, holistically given the Holy Spirit of God. And that is good news. It is good news that our sins can be forgiven, that we can be counted reconciled with God. All through the beginning of Luke's passage, as he compiles this story, he tells us that the Holy Spirit of God fills John from the womb. The Holy Spirit informs the songs of Zechariah and Elizabeth. The Holy Spirit draws Simeon to the temple to praise God that his eyes have seen the salvation of God. And here the very promise is that Jesus Christ can seal you with the Holy Spirit of God. He can forgive your sins. He can protect you from the wrath to come. No wonder Luke calls it good news. Now, there's one final thing that happens in this chapter. And it's not uh, historical as such. It, Luke captures Luke chapter 3 here by not giving us uh, this day happened, then this day happened, then this day happened. It's not chronological, it's thematic. And he does something at the end of the chapter that is the fourth threat. It's the fourth thing that you can do to avoid repentance really working into your life and creating the fruit that it ought to. And he does it thematically because he takes the very end of John's ministry and he brings it into this chapter and buttons the whole chapter together so that the beginning of Luke chapter 3 talks about who? The political system and the religious system. And at the end of Luke chapter 3, we're introduced again to the political system. You with me? Look at what verse 18 says. But... With many exhortations, he preached the good news to the people, but... Something happened. Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all. In context, this is an evil thing. He's been doing evil. He's been reproved and rebuked by John the Baptist, who has no problem rebuking and reproving anyone. Amen? He's got, no, he's got no problem preaching to anybody at any strata of society. He can talk to crowds, he can talk to religious leaders, he can talk to political leaders. Because he's not, it's not him that you have to deal with. You have to deal with Christ. So when John starts preaching and starts identifying sin in the culture, the culture reacts and responds and the political powers of the day don't like the fact that John would 
foist his morality upon the politics. Verse 20, he added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now let me apply this. The fourth threat is just to turn down the preaching of the gospel in your life. Don't listen to what other Christians have to say about who Jesus is and why he matters. Just start to eliminate them from your life. Just be, I mean, have friends for sure. Friends are good. Friends are important. Community even. Community's good. Community's important. But don't spend a lot of time with people who want to talk about things like, I don't know, sin, repentance, Don't get around older, mature believers who might actually challenge you to think about the kind of inner conversations that you are having. Don't have conversations with people who actually care about your spiritual life and are willing to call you on the carpet for the sins that you are currently committing. Just turn down those people. Turn down those conversations. Don't spend a lot of time listening to people who disagree with the decisions you are making. Exist in a kind of blasé, relaxed, we're all Christians here, we ain't that bad, we don't need to talk about sin, aren't you glad? Man, we're not on the outside, we're on the inside. Because what you see at the close of this chapter is that your culture will turn down the gospel. That politicians will turn down the gospel. That your friends at work will turn down the gospel. There may even be people in your friend groups where you think they believe like I believe, where they begin to respond to the fact that they are sinners in need of repentance and they go, man, that's just a message that's too kind of hard. I don't really want to spend a lot of time on that. Let's just do other stuff. Not the bad stuff, just the good stuff. Let's do good fun stuff where we don't really have to care for one another's soul. I don't want all of that empathy and generosity and integrity at work and gosh, I got lots of opportunities and if I just bend the rules a little bit, my line of work will allow me to advance in my dreams and ambitions and my successes. Sin is good, but that's good for Sunday. Leave me alone. And for some of us, the greatest threat to our lives is that we're just willing to turn down the volume on the gospel. We don't want to spend that much time thinking about it. We don't want to spend that much time talking about it. We don't want to spend that much time repenting. See, here's the reality. A church that refuses, let me just tell you this, from me to you, you don't have to deal with me. You got to deal with Jesus. You got to deal in your conversations and in your heart and in your repenting with where you stand with Christ. But I will tell you that a church that refuses to talk about sin, that refuses to talk about the gospel and Jesus Christ as the solution to our sin, a church that refuses to discuss the fact that there is an eternal destiny for every single person in this room, A church that refuses to talk about the fact that there is reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ for sinners has lost its right to become a church because it has abandoned the very thing that gives sinners hope. There ain't no better message than what this book says. Amen?
There's no greater hope that you have. Even if you are sinning today and you're recognizing, Steve, I have been putting repentance off. Steve, I've been justifying myself in the eyes of my friends and my neighbors and in my workplace. But can I tell you that there is hope for you because you can turn today and you can have a life of true integrity where you can have a life where your sins really are forgiven and your spiritual life can bear fruit. Do you know that's possible? You aren't meant to be in a spot of perpetual frustration and lack of fruitfulness. It is promised to you that Jesus says, I have chosen you, I have appointed you to go and to bear what? Fruit. Where does it start? It starts with being honest about who we are. It starts with our willingness to say, God, I'm not who I ought to be. And a lot of times my repentance is half-hearted. My repentance doesn't take into everything I need to take it into. I justify my sin. I adjust the message. I, I think repentance is better for other people than for us. But my prayer for us is that we would continue to come back to the source of the gospel hope. That we'd be willing to say, listen, I'm a sinner. I don't believe rightly. I have sins that eat my lunch. There are things where I'm scared and uncertain and fearful. I don't believe the promises of the gospel. But I need friends who are willing to point that out, right? I need people who are willing to have the hard conversation. I need a Bible that reminds me that Jesus loves me and dies for me. So watch your heart. Watch the threats. Watch the false messages that you easily believe. And may we be a church that repents well. Father, we ask for grace to do what we know we ought to do, to repent, to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, for repentance really to have a holistic work in our life and in our heart. Father, we acknowledge that there are threats, that the world, the flesh, and the devil consistently attack us consistently seek to deceive us and to cause us to walk in despair. Would the glory of Christ and the wonderful truth that the Psalms say that with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Would we be sobered by a message like this from John the Baptist? Would we be aware of the ways in which we seek to adjust or minimize or avoid the simple call to repent? And Father, as we do that, would you confirm our steps and remind us of your great love? Would you turn our eyes to Christ, the only hope for reconciliation, the only hope that would pour out the Holy Spirit upon us, that would defeat the sins that so easily entangle and that we might walk in freedom and joy and confidence, knowing without a doubt that our sins are forgiven, that we are washed clean and we are reconciled with the maker of heaven and earth. So Father, that's our prayer. Bless us in this endeavor. In Christ's name, amen.